it all started I just wanted to get a plaque a small little plaque that you could put on the wall or the railings there you can see the railings in the background and it was just a small plaque I wanted there but like his friends and Mark's brothers then said they remembered when they used to go camping in the Dublin mountains up towards Rockbrook and they noticed a lot of granite in different fields that was embedded into the ground so we all went up one day uh, with a couple of cars and a trailer and we asked the farmer could we have a piece of granite you know and we went to get the pieces of granite but we didn't know how deep down they were and we were stumbling and falling and trying to lift it we didn't have equipment for us to actually lift it out of the ground we had to use our hands we eventually done it and I brought it back and I took it with square of ground about 6 inches deep and I explained to the stonemasons what I wanted with it and they said yeah that they could sand the face of the granite smoothing it off a bit and then carve out the inscription that I wanted to put in it so it's been there ever since and I normally visit it every so often I come down and just have a few words of mark on my own you know and I never absolutely never think about him I always just think about Mark and never never think of the other side of the park at all in 1997 53 homicides were recorded in the Republic of Ireland the victim of one of these was Mark O'Keefe aged 20 a shy carpet fitter from Tala in Dublin but after the initial flurry of support and interest what happens to those left behind how does the state deal with the families of victims? And what happens when the families of victim and perpetrator are separated by just a field? <coughs> On the 20th of May, Mark came in from work. He went up, had a shower, and he was after being up in the square and he got runners, jeans and an Adidas top of us, a polo shirt and my friend was sitting here and we were just having a cup of tea and he came down the stairs and like that, he just walked out the door and that was the last I saw Mark and he was, he just looked great that day. I was sitting on the sofa which is in the sitting room and I started to nod up because it was, it, was, it was such a fine day you know and I was nodding off and I was awoken down by a commotion the kids were out playing um, and um, I was sitting in the chair there and knock at the door and I went out and it was one of Paul's friends. Paul is Mark's brother and Paul's friend knocked on the door and he just said to me, Catherine, Mark's been in an accident on the field and I just ran in and Tommy had boots on him. He just put the boots on him and he ran out down the lace and I was opening them. So... I was running out the door and if I got my shoes, I come back in and put them on me. And I ran out and I jumped into the car and I asked the owner, where's the accidents? Which part of the estate? So I was driving out and he said, it's down at the field. So I'm driving down and I see a huge crowd on the football field in a circle. And all of a sudden, like my heart just started pounding, you know. So I pulled up at the field, which is right opposite the small shop and I couldn't get out of the car because like my legs were just numb because I was panicking you know I was running but I wasn't getting anywhere and then eventually then I just fell on my legs and I seen everybody looking at me and I heard someone saying here's his father 
and they all just, like the circles just opened and I just saw Mark on the ground and Paul was kneeling over him and I ran over and uh, I looked down on him and his eyes were looking upwards and I kneeled down and I picked him up and I could hear Paul telling him uh, Dad, say you'll be okay. So I just picked him up and I took Paul's jacket off his head and I saw a scalp like fell down over his ear and I fixed it back and I pulled him into me and I said, Mark, Mark, you are like and his eyes just kept rolling and I said, Mark, I'm here. It'll be okay. And I could start hearing swords coming down, you know. And uh, he just passed away. And I, I, I couldn't not show what I, what he knew I was there, you know. Because I wouldn't like him to think that he died on his own, on the field. But uh, it was just total shock. It was just, like, this is not, this is not happening, this is not real. A normal day, and I said, I'm going to wake up on the sofa and I'm going to say to Kate, I don't know, it's real. But uh, more or less got worse because as it was sinking in, the police cars were arriving, five, six, seven of them, and then the ambulance arrived. The whole field was blocked off, there was police everywhere. And uh, I just didn't know what to, like, like, like what to do or what to say. So he was taken away in the ambulance and I just got back into the car and I came back up to the house. And when I parked outside, the hall door was open and I could see straight into the kitchen and I could see Kay and she knew there was something wrong. And she shouted out, so she, don't you tell him. Come in here and tell me, aunt, now it's my, my, my son. And I just, I just stood at the car. And I said, don't tell me, aunt. Don't tell me that Mark's gone and I know that I was just banging on his chest, I think it was then. And then she started smashing everything. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was just got straight really upset, Tommy does, when he talks about the field. And it's just always the same, isn't it, Tommy, before you? Yeah. He just relives it all again. It's 11 years at the moment. And to me, it's only five seconds. I can nearly tell you, like, like the, the height of the grass around them at the time. I can see it that clearly. I can see the people, I can see the police cars arriving in the ambulance, I can see Mark. I'm holding Mark and I can, I can hear people mumbling all around me, you know. And it's, it's just very clear. And it always will be. Always will be. It just doesn't go away. It never goes away. I uh, wasn't down near the field. I didn't go down. I just remember on the Saturday, um, and my GP came out and he just gave me tapas kind of to relax because that's all. I don't really remember anything. I slept in Mark's bed for a good few nights because I could still feel him. I could smell him, if you understand what I'm saying. And... I just have all my things all packed and I have them all in the attic in the case because I wouldn't give nothing away belong to them. They're just my things that I hold on to. And I have his aftershave and his toothbrush I still 
still have that and actually his leather jacket which he bought up in the sheepskin shop up in the square his dad wears that it was an expensive jacket wasn't it it's a bit hotter than it's torn now the lining and it's it's probably just me being stupid or whatever you know but I just like to wear it every now and then it kind of picks me up cheers me up a bit you know and uh, that's why I wear it and I just keep it there and sometimes they just look at it and just hold the sleeve and think that he wore that you know things like that you know no, I wouldn't get it washed or not, because I I I don't think it was any of the the, the flavours, as you might say, from us from the past, you know. Even to his razor and all, to shave and foam, and I just still have it all. One hundred and four witnesses saw the attack in the park that Friday evening. Mark had been talking to a friend on the field when a young man he had never met ran onto the park armed with four kitchen knives. The motive for his unprovoked attack on Mark is still unclear, but among Mark's multiple stab wounds was one that pierced the right ventricle of his heart. Well, the morning after it really was that day where the newspapers were here for photographs of Mark for to put into the paper. They told me that he was out in bail for a serious assault on a taxi driver and it was a very serious assault. That he had literally ate the skin off the man's face when you found out that Mark's attacker was somebody from the area? No, he wasn't from our area. Okay. No, he, was, he, he wasn't from our area. He is from um, a private estate. But we didn't know anything at the time. You know, we didn't even know who he was, never even heard of him. I didn't even know his name at the time. And after they had left, I found out from somebody else, when he left the field after killing Mark, he proceeded to go home and from there he went up to Belfast and across on the ferry to Scotland and he, down to London and had made arrangements then to give himself up and had a barrister and a solicitor dealing with it over here so when he came back to give himself up I think it was on the following Tuesday or Wednesday they met him and he went to Swords Guard Station Four days after the attack, a 20-year-old man from across the park was charged with Mark's murder. At the time of the killing, he had been out on bail for a savage attack on a taxi driver, biting his face a dozen times. After also being charged with Mark's murder, he was granted bail once more. Now I find that strange for a man that was, uh, was already on bail for a serious assault, had left the jurisdiction of the state while, while on bail. So obviously he broke his bail conditions and given bail again for a more serious assault than the serious assault he was on bail for. So I, I went personally to, to the DPP and I wanted a confirmation from them as to why this happened. And a month later I received a letter from them and it states... The decision to grant bail in this case has been given very careful consideration. However, it has been decided that there is no legal grounds to review that decision. Yours sincerely, legal assistant. I'd say it was about a week, a week after the funeral. A man, the wife, was up visiting Mark, and it was only rough, a rough mound of clay and the flowers were beginning to wither on it 
and the guards arrived in the police car in the unmarked police car we went over to them and he said uh, they, they apologised for for interrupting us and that but he said that uh, the mother and father wanted to meet us and we'll, would we have any objections to meeting so I said I'd let them know that like, later on that night so we, we came home we talked about it and we assumed that they'd be just as upset as we are, you know, because they didn't send him out to do what he'd done. So uh, I found the guards and I said, yeah, that we would meet them. One of the guards came here, brought us down to the spa well, and he introduced us to them. And we just said hello, and they said hello, and we started more or less general conversation about how you keep and stuff like that, you know. The father turned around down to me and said he, he got, it was an awful thing to happen and says you but uh says he says yeah, I suppose like it could have been the other way around. And I said, uh, what do you mean by that? Well says he like it could have been your son that killed my son. I challenged him on it and then I said, Enough of this, I said to the wife, that's enough talking here, we're leaving. And we stood up and walked out. Within months, Mark's killer was jailed for seven years for the earlier and separate attack on the taxi driver. The judge described it as the attack of an uncontrolled rabid animal. He was in prison two years for this crime before being tried for Mark's murder in the Central Criminal Court in October of 1999. From our point of view, like we're thrown into the situation here at the deep end and everything is turmoil, you know, everything's upside down. And the, the system of the courts and all that, the surroundings is very uh, overpowering. And like, like, you, you, it does make you nervous. Your heart is beating fast and you're looking around. There's guards, there's barristers and looking wakes and all that around you. And it, there's paper will pile up all on the desk and all the reporters. And the court is full of people. Plus, like, he had, uh, he had a senior counsel, junior counsel, solicitor and a clerk, clerk's runner. We only had one barrister for the state, one barrister. And we only met him the week before we got the card. Whereas he had a year and a half for us to get Although he was charged with murder, the jury returned a manslaughter verdict and he was sentenced to 10 years. The judge described him as a menace to society. We live about, about 300 yards away from where Mark died. Yeah, that's how close it was, you know. If I walk out to my front gate and stand on the footpath, I look to my left and I can see the field. And uh, that, that's how close it is. And that's a, it's a constant reminder. Uh, we've often thought about moving, but we wouldn't move out of this house because we wouldn't leave Mark. We wouldn't leave him on his own on that field. Never. Never, I'd never ever leave this house, even if I won the lotto. I'd still be living here no matter what. As this is my home, this is where I raised my my children in and myself and Tommy. And it's just never ever do it. I'd never move from here. No, because this house is us, and we're this house. We are a family of eight. We still are a family of eight. Mark is still here. We still talk about Mark in the present, not in the past. And he's part of our future. And always will be.
It's September 2008 and Tommy is in the park. Ah, Davey, how are you, buddy? Not too bad. Eleven years have passed since the attack. Eleven years and neither family has moved. They remain on opposite sides of the park. I wonder how the other family is getting on, so I contact them to see if they'll tell me their side of the story, but they're not interested. Their son was given 17 years for the two attacks, but, having served less than 11, the O'Keefe's have now been told to expect his release in five months' time. That's February 2009. This is, a, this is where I pay close to him, because I was kneeling on the ground when I held him and he died on this field. So normally every New Year's Eve, just before 12 o'clock, about half 11, I'd arrive down here, and I'd stand here just talking to him on that, you know. And all the fireworks be going off all over the area, you know. And people coming up to the hall doors and saying Happy New Year and all that. And I did, it's kind of sad in a way because to me it's not Happy New Year anymore. It's, there's just a big emptiness. And I think of my wife and kids and they're probably feeling the same. You know, like everybody puts a brave face on, but inside you're dying, you know. Really, that's that's how I feel about it. But uh, it still goes on, and as long as I'm alive, I'll be down here every New Year's Day, half eleven. And I just hope you can hear me, you know, that he's with me. That he's standing beside me when I'm, when I'm looking at the memorial stone. Tommy, do you ever think about the family on the other side of the park? Never. They never cross my mind, and we don't mention it at home because I don't, I don't like sons or daughters that think of them either. Why should I waste time to just to validate that family? It was the worst day in my life when, when they ever made contact with us. But uh, no, I, I wouldn't give them a thought. I never ever think of them. You know, I, I just, I don't know. That's just the way I am, you know, and the way Kate is. But she never mentions them either. When she does mention them, it's always them. It's never by name. It's always them, you know. That's that's all way they know with it. But I don't bother talking about them. Any of them. If they were if they were run over by a, a truck or any and I seen it, I'd walk by them, I'd lead them on the road. Now I know it's so nice to say that, but that's how I feel. They're not human beings to me. How much longer will Mark's attacker be in prison? He's due out on Valentine's Day 2009. I don't even want to think about it, to be honest with you, because I don't know how I'd feel if I did come face to face. I'm hoping that I'd be more mature about it. Like, I can't turn the clock back. And if I was to do something on this other guy... That would only make me like him. And I'd be turning back and Mark would be doing that. So it's a mixture of emotions, whether it's a vengeance or do I walk away. He'd be dealt with anyway, you know. After he passes his life, he'd be dealt with. So I'm kind of hoping that I would think that I would walk away. My worry is in my son's because they're very angry well there's two of them very angry still after being 
Rob dub that all this brother. I've I've often been talking to him about it and the anger would build up in the moment of, of the conversation and then it subsides. But you could see it in their face, in their eyes, that you know it's deep it's deep anger. Yeah. And hopefully they won't meet this guy. Please God he won't anyway. Do you ever go over that side of the park? Never. No, never. Never do. I've never had a reason to go to the far side of the park. I always die on this side. We're only working class people. They're slightly, slightly above us because we, we live in the council state here, there, and the private state. But there's great people around this area. There's lovely people in this area. And I'd never move out. I'd never leave this this house of men or this stone here, the memorial stone we're looking at. I'd fail that I'm leaving them on his own again. And that'll never happen again. It happened once and never happen again. Therefore, I leave my house in a, in a coffin as well. You know? That's the way I look at it. Four months have passed. It's now January 2009. I called to the O'Keefe's to see how they're preparing for the release on Valentine's Day. Hi, Al. Tommy, how's it going? But there's been a development. Well, actually, uh, I was walking on a Friday. Uh, I was in work and uh, my, uh, my mobile rang and I was to inform me that there was a letter being sent to me explaining that he was getting released for the weekend and that it wouldn't arrive in time that he would have been finished his weekend released by the time I got the letter. So it it was to inform me that he was getting that weekend off and it would be in print during the week it would be sent to me and if I had to inform my family of, of what was going on and he felt that he was going to give the go-ahead for full-time release, earlier release, earlier than the 14th of February. If he was getting out that weekend, he would have been out that morning before I got the phone call. So he would have been out of the ill. So to inform me so late in the day, I thought it was, was, was a bit un, unreasonable because they were informing me after the fact that he was out of the ill. You know? And plus, they, did, they were putting it in writing, which I wouldn't have got till the following week. So either myself, my wife, or any member of my family, or extended family, might have bumped into this guy and not known he was released because uh, most of my family know him from the trial. So when you got the phone call, how did you tell the rest of your family? I told the wife first, you know, and she just more or less didn't say anything because they, we don't have faith in the government. You know, or the justice, especially the justice system and the court system. You know, like the way we were treated, we just lost our confidence in it, really. You know, but she doesn't say much. She's she's very deep and very, very, very hard. And when you got the news that Friday afternoon, did you break the news to Mark? Did you tell Mark? Oh, I did. Yeah, oh, I did. Yeah, I was up in Barnabena. Each time I go up, I always talk to him. I always kind of keep me informed of what's going on. But that day that I went up, 
I was saying to him, and I said, look, you probably already know this, that he's, he's getting released. And I, I just wonder what your thoughts were on it. You're talking there about the possibility of bumping into Mark's killer. Do you have a picture in your head of what he would look like at this stage? Oh, yes, I have, yeah. yeah. He's very distinctive. He's very distinctive. And if, if you saw this guy once, you can never forget. He has s- certain features and certain eyes to me look cold. And I never forget looking at his eyes in the court. I, I focused on them. And their eyes, that it doesn't matter if he was 60. I know who he is. Yeah. For months now, Tommy has been preparing himself for the February release of his son's killer. But the way he's been told this latest piece of news has unnerved him. And the surprises don't end there. A fortnight later, I'm back at the house. Yeah, the letter came to the house was just to me. And I, helped. I knew my book by looking at the letter that that was from the prison service because I had received a couple of, of letters from him. So I knew by the, the herb and Irish prison services stamped on him. So uh, I read it first because I didn't want her to open it. It stated on the 20th of January, but I didn't receive this letter till Monday the 26th of January. And it reads as follows. Dear Mr O'Keefe, I refer to my letter of January the 14th in which I advise you of the outcome of the parole board process in relation to the person that killed Mark. In my letter, I, I committed to updating you if there was any further progress in this case. I therefore must inform you that the person that killed Mark has been approved for full temporary release, with effect from today, the 20th of January 2009. Yours sincerely, Victim Liaison Officer. In other words, he's out from the 20th of January 2009 and not the 14th of February. So, he's even getting more time off after his time off for good behaviour. Look at all, honestly, maybe I, 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 I should probably write him a letter. You know, that, that, like, it's probably me that owns, an, owns him an apology why he was locked up. Because by looking at this, it wasn't his fault and it was all a mistake. And so they they giving him time off because of it. And more time off, and more time off. You know, it's all it's all him, how well he's doing. He has a future. He has to come back to his family and start his life with his family, his brothers and sisters and his parents and all that. There's nothing about us. It's all it's all him. And that's why I don't have any faith in the in in the justice system. Because I went to the prison service. I arranged a meeting with the prison service. It, it was myself and my wife who done all the writing and ringing and finding out information. I was the one that had to do it all. When victims' families request it, the Irish Prison Service undertakes to inform them of any major decisions in advance. In this case, the service says its victim liaison officer handled matters correctly. But when the biggest decision of all was finalised, the O'Keefe family was the last to know. The youngest of the family, Shane, was only eight when Mark was killed and still lives with Tommy and Catherine. After Mark, the eldest brothers are Paul and Thomas. 
I just got a text. Um, I was in college. I just got a text from my mum saying that um, that he's out. You know, I was shocked because um, I thought we would have got more um, something like a lot earlier to say that he was getting out. But uh, my mum said I texted her back and she said that she got a letter saying he got out. He's out already, and he got out on me, me ma- my granny's uh, birthday. And uh, I just knew with a text that my mum, you know, she like I could just picture her sitting there like she, it would have killed her, you know, because like my ma really like shows her feelings and. Uh, your dad said he was worried, you know, because you're more likely to bump into him than he would be because you're more his age, about how you might react. If you bumped into him, to be honest, I wouldn't know how I would react if I did bump into him because there's, there's a lot of uh, anger there towards him, you know, for for what he's done. But, um, like, I, I wouldn't say I'd, I'd go as far. I wouldn't kill him or anything like that, you know, because, like, that's, that's, that's not me. I wouldn't do something like that, you know, and uh, I wouldn't lower myself to that level level that he went to so um, I don't know how I would react if I did see him but um, I wouldn't do anything like physical or, or violent towards him anyway just uh, I know I know if I ever met him I'd, I'd confront him do you know what I mean and, and I wouldn't be too nice about it either like, but now he's out like I'd say it's, I'd say out, out, it's gonna, he's more scared of anything else than coming out than anybody else is to him because like he doesn't know what to expect he's always going to be looking over his shoulder and not knowing what's going to happen to him so we have to live with these people because they're only literally across the field from my house and anywhere like I was friends or I was around and these friends look at me as as a oh like the, I'm the I'm the villain John kind of way like my family it was my family were the cause of it like he's not only he didn't only kill me ma I didn't only kill Mark he killed him him me ma me dad my other brother and my sister so you know like I'm, they have to, we have to deal with this thing all when I go up and see his grave I'll be like it, it, it does, it's it's not it doesn't get to me as much as what I'd get to any of them or me mother and father because I say because I barely knew me, but I, what gets me the most when I, when I when I come home at night and I see my mother there, like that's when that's what that's what really breaks my heart. So that's what I really want to. Like my man and I haven't been the same. Like my mum can't go out for a drink now. She's going out tonight. She's she's going to come back and cry herself to sleep. Like you know she she's she's on these tablets where like she just can't sleep and on on her own anymore. Like and we we have to like wait, wait like like she come in and she'll sit in that chair and she put on put on the radio and listen to the songs of, and then just remind them I can have sit there and picture me brother and cry herself to sleep and then we I'll have to come down because they until I moved out and have to carry her to bed and then like she, or else my mom and dad come in arguing like or, either over like saying they should have been there and should have done this and should have done that which it's not it's not their fault like you know and sometimes my mom and dad kind of lose their head at, at us like at times you know like not no just. Just snapping out and no look out of control and then just saying, but like that's that's just basically it. Like you can look around this room and it just pictures me, brother. And like if you go up to my it just pictures me, brother. It's just like a shrine. He has his own little shrine in the corner over there, as you see, like the candles there. Every day my mom lights candles, like you know, I'm just hoping for answers. But she never got them, like, and she's not, like, like she's, she's really hurt the most. Kind of, I can't actually say that, can I? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Dad always says it, not only drinking, like, uh, it should have been him getting very full, it's not, not mm. Mark. And, uh, don't want to bury your own kids. It, yeah, it kills me, Dad. Like, I just see him, he'd just be crying and all, you know, and it's hard to see, you had to take that in when you see your man and dad crying. And the way that it was handled afterwards, like, um, with the, the court system and and the authorities over it, it just, it was just dealt wrong. It was like, it's like, we've been hurt as a family by Mark's uh, murder, but we've been like, you know, the hurt has been piled on by the way the government have handled this. The way we were treated in the court, the fact he was given manslaughter, the, that we were made like you know uh, we were made as if like you know that we were nobody Um, the prison service I know has spoke to my man that 
But like my dad says, he's m- unlikely to run into them. It's going to be the likes of us. Um, we haven't got any help from the prison yeah. system. I don't know. It's the first time I've ever heard of it. I never heard of that. Like, really, are they supposed to give you help? With the prison system, I think a good idea with our families who have suffered horrific crimes and murders and, and stuff like that. And if they have this victim liaison officer, maybe, like, you know, a visit out to a house of a family who's been and give them warnings of what you know to expect what other families have gone through we have to find our own way of dealing it because nobody has the time to come out and spend you know a half an hour explaining to us well, no, nobody's definitely not knocked here anyway no. I, I honestly that's the very first time I've ever heard that what is it victim victim yeah, liaison officer I've, I've never heard a phone even a phone call or something you know just to say like it's set in stone he's going to get out on such and such a day but to get the letter and then to find out that he's already out, and my man could be going right, it could be going around town, and she could have met him in in town, you know. Thinking he's and, been in prison. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like we exactly. I could have walked to town, and then he could have walked by me, and I would have said, "No, nah, couldn't be. He's in prison." And I would have just walked on, and then Jeremy you know I mean? and same with all of us. We could be sitting in the bus next to him. I could be talking to him. I could be even having a conversation with him, and then I'd be like, "No, nah, but it couldn't be because he's still in prison." And as I said, from this liaison officer, it's that whole writing these letters because like, she, should, she should come out and contact the victim and say, look, he's coming out on the 20th. Two months before it, even a month before it, as soon as she finds out, she should be in that car. Somewhere else, in an unknown location, a 32-year-old man is unpacking a suitcase, preparing for his new life. At the O'Keefe's house, the belongings of another young man, who would also have been 32, are being unpacked in a well-worn ritual. Because this is a, this is an old case of mine that I had years ago when I was in youth. It's now the life and times and death of Marco Keefe's belongings. The mementos, the memories, is all in this little case. These are just the mass cards from the neighbours, friends and whatever. Another thing in it is Gilbert Parks and a couple of dirties and that, you know, names that he had, whatever. Now, this other plastic bag here, these are more stuff he had in his pocket. I have a tied in and that's I won't open it. A lighter, it's hauled door key. And this bag here contains this is Mark's bag, it's a little brown envelope. Now this is the most treasured and personal thing that we have been at the mark. That's the last slip up, a uh, lock of his hair. That's the only personal thing that was part of Mark that I have. And it means a lot to us, it means more than anything else that, that we have in the case. Because we know that's part of him. We can touch it, feel it, you know. And uh, just before they put the lid on his coffin, I asked the undertaker, would he take a snip out of his hair? Which is a terrifying moment because you know that that's a, that's a final that's a final thing because he's laid to rest after that. We, we'll never ever see him again after that. Now let's just leave back in the case again. Not much to show for 20 years, 4 months and 5 days. Well, it proves that he was on this earth. It proves he lived. It proves he was somebody, he was a human being with feelings, 
and he shouldn't have died the way he died. It's now late April 2009. Eight months have passed since I first visited the O'Keeffe's, and four since the release. Ahead of Mark's 12th anniversary, Tommy and Shane are cutting the grass around the memorial. Summer's on its way, and Shane's sleeveless T-shirt displays a large tattoo of Mark's face on his upper arm. Now that tidies it up a little bit. When I visited you last, Tommy and Shane, you just heard the news that Mark's killer was released early, before you'd even got the letter. That's correct, yeah. How do you feel about that now, as the 12th anniversary approaches? Just felt loyalty kind of basically like felt like and I, can't, I think they kind of meant for that to be do you know what I, like I honestly do I think that they wanted to get him out of prison without was known and then send the letters and maybe maybe, maybe say it was a clinical error it was a mistake or something like you know so that we wouldn't actually know the exact date in case we, we they maybe have, what, would have thought that we were going to harm him while he was coming out of prison so they probably wanted him to get him out of prison and get him gone and then then inform us and date the letters back so that we wouldn't know if you understand well, she was indifferent to the case. Like, she was only there to represent his interests and his future and the way that he can conduct himself when he gets out of prison. And hopefully, like, like according to them, that they would like to see him move on with life and have a normal life, have a family, a job, you know, what we all expect of our kids. Get a, get a, sec- a second chance. A se- second chance. If you were to guess, how many victim liaison officers do you think there are in the whole country? A rough guess. Uh, I would say probably about 80. But I'll say. When I was researching for the programme, I discovered that there's only one, that the, the woman you were dealing with is the only victim liaison officer that there is for the whole country. Does that surprise you? Yeah, it does actually. And now one person, I can't see how just one person can cope. Like with four and a half million people of a population this country and expanding, that there's only one victim liaison. Considering the amount of violence that we see on the news each day and we read in the papers, how how in God's name could that one person deal with the families of those victims? Like, she'd want to be a superwoman now, or to get one into the country and have time and knowledge, like specific knowledge of each victim's families. I can't understand that to be honest. One person can't understand. That's unbelievable. As well as dealing with the families of homicide victims, the prison service's only victim liaison officer also has responsibility for dealing with the many victims of serious violent or sexual offences. In the 11 years Mark's attacker was in prison, the Guardi recorded 1,000 homicides, 19,000 sexual offences, and 38,000 assaults. And then you have to look at serious criminals getting quarter of the sentence, five, seven years knocked off because they're, they're supposed to be of good character now, reformed, good behaviour they're very good in prison but the fact of the matter is they've no choice but to be good in prison because there's no way of getting out they're stuck in like an 8 by 8 cell what harm are you going to do to the public there you know what I mean, so why should they give them time off, Mark doesn't get time off, he's dead for life we'll never see him again, he's not going to get leaked he's not going to come back here in another 
10 years time inside. Well, that's it. I'm not the dim with time now as being dead. Now I'm alive now for another five years. Do you think you'll ever hear from Mark's killer again? Hopefully, when we find out he's in the ground, it's the next time I want to hear about him. I don't really want to ever even think about him or his family. You know, to be honest with you. Well, you can't, you can't actually say that. Like, in all of the back of my mind, that, 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 oh, there is a, a vengeance, and, and like, as if, like, if we did meet him, like, uh, as much as what my brothers might have said, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to just walk by and. It would stir up emotions, to be honest with you. You know, like, I can't say how I'd respond. Like, if I ever met him again, uh, like, after going through and seeing on the day that Mark died, what happened to Mark, and saying how Mark died, you know, so. That would come into my mind if I ever crossed him again, which hopefully I don't. Like, there's a lot of people out there, victims, and they are feeling the same thing. They have to carry that all through their lives till the day they die. But the only thing about with me is I know where I'm going when I die. I visit the grave of Mark all the time, and I know I'll be the next one in there. You know, so that's the way I look at it. You know, I just I move on and look after my family and my grandkids, and after I die and pass on, then I'll see Mark and that'll end the pain for me then hopefully When you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping Kroger where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over $600 each week you can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time Kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply